This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to FinTech Recap. We have one month almost entirely in the books, which means that Jason Mikula, publisher of FinTech Business Weekly, is back to break down January 2024. Mr. Mikula, how are you? I'm good. You know, I was hoping to a relatively quiet start to the year, but we didn't do that. So it's been busy, but good. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, we're going to get into that, Jason. We are going to get into that. There has definitely been some stuff that's happened. There's some things we have some questions on. There's some sort of slapping face with palm sort of moments that we'll probably get to. Before that, though, I meant to ask you, what is your travel schedule for the spring fintech season, which we are rapidly coming up on sooner than you might think? I really cannot believe that I will be in Las Vegas in basically a month. You know, by the time this comes <laughs> out. And yeah, I, mean, I, you know, love all of the events that take place in Las Vegas, not my favorite yes. city. But yeah, I've yeah. been like heads down January and next month, February, getting as much done as possible because it is a fintech meetup in Las Vegas. Maybe, I don't know, I don't understand when the Super Bowl is, but like maybe Taylor, there'll still be some like, references to Taylor Swift floating around in Las Vegas, hopefully. I don't know. I'm going from there to a <laughs> event in, it's not in Cancun. It's a Finavista, which is a like Mexican slash LATAM conference, <laughs> uh, which is at the all-inclusive Excret Resort, which I am very excited about. I will be speaking at that. Oh my gosh. Hanging around Mexico City until the beginning of April for New York FinTech Week. Then coming home just to like drop off my suitcase, I guess, and then going to Istanbul for a fintech conference there. So that is my schedule. And, and hopefully, I think I'm going to get John Zanoff from Empire to join us for next month's show so he can give us a bit of a preview. I mean, am I going to see you at any of these things? I know you're not in Vegas, but I think you're in New York, right? I am, yes. So I am not going to FinTech Meetup because it just so happens to be scheduled at the same time that my son was born and is celebrating his birthday, which is actually something I'm thankful for because much as I love FinTech Meetup, and I do, yeah, too much Vegas is not good for myself personally. So not sad about that. I actually, though, will be going to Vegas later in March for the Financial Brand Forum, which is strangely one of those FinTech financial services events that I've never been to. So I'm crossing that one off the list. And then I will be at New York FinTech Week, which I'm very much looking forward to. I do not have quite the same like international travel. I don't know how I can get on these same lists that you're on with like all-inclusive resorts in Mexico, but please add me to those because I'd like to go to those. I will suggest you as a speaker for the next one. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, I appreciate that. I mentioned that we have a lot of news to get to, so let's go ahead and jump in. The first one that I want to talk about is a return. Cue up the Gilligan's Island music. We're going to Bass Island, where our embedded reporter Jason Mikula has been living through the lean times. He's been living through the good times. He's been seeing all the drama. And Jason, you have quite a bit to report from Bass Island. So what's been going on? Yeah, I'm 
both enjoying and also partially regretting our dubbing this the Bass Island segment because now we're just <laughs> stuck with it like for eternity. Uh, yeah, definitely some notable developments since the last time we spoke. I mean, the two, and on the same day, actually, well, more or less. Yeah. Uh, the two big ones being Blue Ridge Bank you know, disclosing in an SEC filing its second enforcement action, which is coming from the OCC, and Choice Bank also disclosing an enforcement action, which was actually signed at the end of December and made public by the FDIC at the towards the end of January. So this is interesting. I mean, it, it, both of these orders, and we will not go through it line by line. You can certainly find that. You know, I covered it some in my newsletter. And if you're interested in like the nitty gritty specifics from like a BSA AML perspective, I recommend following Sarah Beth Felix, who usually breaks down a lot of these consent orders when they come out. And, and she comes at it from like an AML program and like board governance perspective in a very great amount of detail. So if, if that's the angle you want, you know, it's definitely out there. I recommend finding it if it's of interest. I mean, I think for, you know, you and me, the lens tends to be more around, you know, what is the impact to, you know, Bass partner banks? What is the impact to middleware? What is the impact to what I've taken to calling sort of like user-facing or customer-facing fintech. So I think the Blue Ridge order is particularly interesting in that it is the second enforcement action in less than 18 months. And that's yeah. despite, at least again, from external observations, so what we know publicly, Blue Ridge was taking or appeared to be taking the right steps, right? It switched out, you know, senior management, brought in, William Billy Beal, who has deep experience in the community banking space, you know, was refocusing on its community banking roots, sort of slimming down its fintech and Bass client portfolio, undertook a capital raise, so raised an additional $150 million in equity capital. These are all things that, you know, signal that Blue Ridge was taking the initial action seriously and, and sort of taking steps to address regulatory concerns. So it's a bit, you know, it's hard to know what led to this second action and how to interpret it. You know, on the one hand, does it mean that Blue Ridge had not, you know, made sufficient progress against the issues raised in the initial OCC order? Like that, I think is, again, knowing what we know, that's probably a fair reading, you know, that that tends to be why you would see a second action, particularly this closely following the first one, which based on, you know, smarter bank regulatory people than me said is, is quite unusual to have them close the uh, space this closely together. The order also classified Blue Ridge as being in troubled condition, which I had to like look up exactly what that means from a regulatory perspective. It sounds bad, but the two things I found that that actually does is one, restrict the bank's ability to basically have golden parachute payouts to senior bank execs. And it also in disqualifies them from expert certain OCC filings. So it sounds really bad, but like the actual practical implications seem rather minimal. You know, some interesting threads across both of these. Both of them worked with a Bass platform unit. I want to caution, there's no reason or evidence to suggest that, you know, unit 
caused or contributed to the banks getting these orders. So I, I, you know, I don't think that that is the right conclusion to draw based on what we know. Choice also worked with NeoBank program Current, as well as Mercury, the business banking platform, which you may know from such lawsuits as Mercury versus Synapse. So a lot of the same <laughs> players t- you know, tend to keep showing up here. Yeah, I mean, Alex, you know, I- I'm curious. You know, I know that you also pay a lot of attention to the partner bank space, Bass Middleware space. What sort of wider context do you put this in? What sort of you know potential impacts or takeaways do you think this might have? I think it is important to put it in the broader context, as you said, because there is definitely some stuff that we don't know. I, the fact that Blue Ridge got a second enforcement action from the OCC less than 18 months after the first one is unusual and concerning. Um, I think, you know, in addition to working with Unit, Blue Ridge had been working with Increase, which is another one of these sort of middleware BAS platforms. And so, you know, I think that, from the, again, from the outside, it's hard to tell exactly which platforms, which programs, which ongoing contracts might have contributed to some of the challenges here. But it is definitely not a good sign. I think it also probably, for whatever interest Blue Ridge had in still kind of keeping its toes in the water of bass before, I think this might serve to further disincentivize that and just push them all the way back into community banking. That wouldn't shock me by any means. But I think, you know, the broader context here is that, and uh, the folks at Claros have been doing a good job sort of sharing kind of the broader picture and some interesting data on this, but they had some data from an analysis they had done about just regulatory enforcement actions that all banks in the U.S. had gotten in 2023. And in Q4 of 2023, roughly a third of all of those enforcement actions went to Bass Banks, which is pretty crazy when you consider that Bass Banks make up a tiny, tiny fraction of the overall number of banks in the U.S. And so Bass as a category is just kind of getting hammered right now. And, you know, some of the enforcement actions we know about because they get disclosed in filings or they become public. But and Jason, I'm sure you've heard the same thing. There's a whole bunch that don't get disclosed or that we never hear about. And in fact, I have heard it characterized and this might be slight hyperbole, although I don't think it's too hyperbolic that everyone in the space is dealing with some level of, I'm not going to say like formal enforcement action, but like everybody's kind of going through it right now. And there's just been a round of, you know, exams that different prudential regulators have been doing. And any bank that offers BAS, they're just getting asked like a ton of questions about it. And so I think we've just sort of caught up to the point in the story where regulators are now fully aware of what's happening here and are asking just a ton of questions and putting a lot of scrutiny on it. And I think a lot of activities, whether it's AML, BSA, whether it's, you know, UDAP, you know, whatever the the potential area is, all of those things are now becoming much more scrutinized. And I think a lot of behavior activities that used to be kind of okay or that regulators just didn't really flag or they weren't aware of, or, you know, quite frankly, Things that were okay for the bank when it was doing it on behalf of the bank itself, but not necessarily when it started expanding it to other third-party programs. I think that's where a lot of the sort of new scrutiny is coming from, and that seems to be the source of a lot of these regulatory actions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think part of what you know is easy to forget it, and maybe this is overstating it a little bit but i imagine if you you know if regulators came in and looked closely enough at any bank 
they're going to find issues, right? And Absolutely. Do those, you know, do those issues rise to the level of any kind of enforcement action, you know, let alone a public enforcement action? You know, probably not. I mean, what we're seeing now, and I mean, this is, I guess, probably kind of obvious at this point, is a concerted sweep, like, across the different bank regulators of banks that are engaged in this business model, and they're going through it with a fine-tooth comb. And so it's not surprising that they are finding problems because they're looking for problems. They're going to find problems. Yes. And to your point, you know, I have to imagine that for, hopefully, for a lot of the banks, you know, those are MRAs, MRIs, things that are resolved, you know, behind the scenes between them and their regulators. But there also is, you know, I don't think any of us like the regulation by, you know, enforcement sort of ethos. There is power in sending a message with public enforcement actions, you know, and I think we have seen some of that and we're likely to see more of that. I mean, like it or not, public enforcement actions provide a pretty clear roadmap blueprint of like, hey, these are the issues you should be paying attention to if you're running these kind of programs. So yeah, I, I certainly, you know, I don't think any of us want to see, you know, banks or their middleware partners or fintechs, you know, unnecessarily get into trouble. And I think could an argument be made that what we're seeing now is the pendulum swinging too far from not enough regulatory oversight of this space to overly aggressive oversight of this space? You know, I think that argument could be made, but it will, again, for better or worse, this tends to be how regulators react. Something is small and they ignore it and then it becomes big and it's a problem and they, you know, they react or overreact and then the pendulum swings back and it's going to be, you know, it's unpleasant for the banks. It's unpleasant for companies that have built on top of that bank infrastructure. But, you know, my position continues to be the model itself is not going to go away. You know, are there going to be realignments, you know, refinements into, you know, again, particularly the sort of compliance, oversight, CMS, third-party risk management stuff? Like, absolutely. But, you know, a year from now, two years from now, you're still going to have fintech bank partnerships, even if they look a little bit different, even if the economics work a little bit differently. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that the one thing I would add to that point you just made is that the real question is going to be what model in the future for banking as a service is acceptable to regulators, right? And like one of the things that I'm hearing discussed a little bit right now is what level of like automation and technology can you apply to managing bank partnerships and scaling compliance programs and some of those questions? Because the whole thing with banking as a service is it's a scalable way to generate revenue for community banks, right? And I think one of the potential overreactions that a lot of folks in the space are hoping that regulators don't continue to sort of push or advance is the idea that if you're going to get into Bass, you just need to throw bodies at it. And you need to just hire a ton of people and just have like a massive compliance operation. And I, I think that that'll be the really interesting area is, I don't think Bass is going to get shut down or anything, but what is an acceptable model for how to make Bass safe and make it work at scale? That to me seems like the question that is sort of up in the air right now and that maybe regulators are perhaps overreacting on a touch based on some of these problems that they're uncovering. Jason, before we uh, send a ship to evacuate you from Bass Island, any other little tidbits you want to share? 
very briefly, since I've, you know, <laughs> been figuring out how to use all of the different court logins, which is really painful, by the way. <laughs> Someone needs to build a tech solution for that. I think that's what LexisNexis does, but it's like, it's really expensive. And yeah, anyway, LexisNexis, if you're listening and you want to give me a free subscription, you know where to find me. Synapse and Mercury. So there was a ruling in at least part of that case, specifically Mercury's intentionally freeze up to 30 million of Synapse's assets, as well as Mercury's request to redact or seal certain documents. The court the judge ruled against both of those. I think that that is actually the only portion that is a public court case. I may be wrong about that, but I think that that resolves like the publicly filed court case, meaning the rest of it would happen in private arbitration. So we may or may not ever find out what happens between those two. That's my last update. Evacuate me. Okay. Evacuate. Okay, well, we're sending the ship. We will evacuate Jason from Bassad for the moment, for the moment. But I do have a suspicion that we're going to be sending you back to do some more reporting from Bass Island. Jason, can we jump to a non-Bass topic? Please, let's do it. (laughs) Okay, uh, so I wanted to talk about another topic that we like to spend some time on, uh, both you and I, which is buy now, pay later. So you might have noticed recently that some of the large buy now, pay later providers, Affirm and Klarna specifically, have been introducing new products and sort of expanding their product suites in interesting ways. And I think Klarna and Affirm present sort of two almost kind of contrasting visions for sort of where buy now, pay later may go. So let me share with you what I've seen and then get your reaction to it. You ready? Ready. Okay. So first up is the idea that buy now, pay later should include a subscription option. And so the general idea seems to be that for heavy users of Buy Now, Pay Later, who may be using Buy Now, Pay Later across a wide swath of their different commerce transactions, including potentially with merchants that are out of network or that generate some fees or that don't have quite the same sort of subsidy attached to them because they have a direct partnership with the Buy Now, Pay Later provider, The idea is, could a buy now, pay later provider introduce a subscription service that would make shopping with those merchants less expensive, more enjoyable, kind of like an Amazon Prime-ish sort of experience of, you know, buy as much with buy now, pay later providers as you want and just, um, you know, pay us a, a single monthly subscription fee. So sort of all you can eat in a sense. It's been reported that a firm has kicked around the idea of a subscription service, though nothing has come to fruition yet. Klarna, on the other hand, has announced that they are going to be introducing a subscription service called Klarna Plus, which costs $7.99 a month. And in exchange for paying $7.99 a month, they will waive all fees associated with buy now, pay later transactions for non-Klarna merchants. So if you're shopping at Amazon or Walmart or Target, and you're wanting to use Klarna to finance those purchases, today you are paying a fee of $1 to $2 per transaction. This would eliminate those fees, as well as provide additional rewards and discounts and other sort of perks and benefits for Klarna Plus subscribers. Now, Separate from that, and very interestingly, the other kind of category of products here that buy now, pay later providers seem to be looking at is going more into the deposit space. So for a while now, a firm has offered a high yield uh, savings account. 
that savings account strangely has always been kind of bolted on to a firm more than sort of deeply integrated into the experience. But they've offered a, a high yield savings account for a while. Klarna supposedly is kicking around the idea of maybe adding a high yield savings account as well, perhaps tied to the subscription service that they're launching where subscribers would get a higher interest rate than non-subscribers. Now, curiously, Jason, I don't know if you saw this, but when CNBC broke the news about Klarna Plus, their original version of their story did have a mention of them maybe adding a high yield savings account. And then apparently at Klarna's request, they removed that from an update to the story. So I'm not exactly sure what's going on there or how interested Klarna is in actually adding the savings account. But the savings account deposit path seems to be a different one you can go down. And in fact, a firm has announced that in addition to the savings account, they are actually going to be adding a full demand deposit account type product that's going to be tied to their debit card. So they are pushing even more in the direction of bank accounts and having the a firm be more of the centerpiece of your financial life. Whereas Klarna, at least for the moment, seems to be more focused on merchant shopping, merchant loyalty rewards, and Klarna Plus sort of fitting into that world. So I don't know, as I sort of look at this, I see sort of two roads diverging in a wood. Which one is more interesting to you? <laughs> the the subscription thing. To... And you, you must answer the question as Robert Frost would. So keep that in mind. The, the subscription, like this BNPL subscription, I mean, on the one hand, like, I get it. I mean, actually, I'm thinking of your recent newsletter about how you need to like something to come manage all of these subscriptions for you, particularly your BMW yeah, yeah. heated steering wheel subscription. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, it just it feels like BNPL is a wider category, you know, including the examples you provide is just like slowly backing itself into becoming a credit card or like a credit card. S yeah. thing. Yeah. So it's like, oh, well, yeah. what if I had a card and it let me buy things, but pay for them later and it had a fee? Maybe I pay it annually. Maybe we call it an annual membership fee and we call this card a credit card. I mean, obviously, I'm being a bit facetious. Yeah. I mean, Clorida is interesting, particularly because in, I mean, in the US, it functions quite comparably to Affirm and, and other BMPLs. In Europe, it actually owns a bank as well as a payment network. It acquired a payment network called Sofort. And so you can start to see it putting together, and I was like frantically Googling while you were talking, I'm pretty sure Klarna in the EU does offer like a high yield savings type account. Which makes sense because it's a bank and it can use that to raise capital and use that capital to power its lending. So it, it? the pieces for that strategy, at least for Klarna specifically in Europe, start to make a lot more sense, right? It has this customer-facing app that's like a shopping portal. It has the paying for BNPL plus longer interest bearing. It has a payment network. You, you, you can see how those pieces fit together into like sort of like a coherent multi-pronged commerce strategy where it's on both sides. It's on the merchant side, it's on the consumer side. It's processing payments between them. It provides credit. Great. In the U.S., like Klarna in the U.S., and, and then also a firm, you know, given, I mean, in a way, some of the banking as a service stuff we were just talking about or, or the yeah. complexity of trying to, to build these products where in many cases, like I would argue the economic model 
remains unproven. So it's like you're describing a firm as having this like savings thing that's like kind of bolted on. It's like, well, that high yield savings account is actually money that is going to cross river, right? Which like, okay, fine. I'm assuming that there's some essentially revenue sharing or interest sharing where a firm is earning, you know, revenue based on the amount of deposits it's bringing to cross river. I think getting these pieces to play together and particularly making the economics for sort of each product or each service work individually becomes quite a bit more complicated in the U.S. because of this like balkanization underneath the hood, where if you're a firm or you're a Klarna, you know, you have a lot of different players underneath powering this, you know, bank partners, card networks, merchants, etc. And, you know, I think that it sort of remains to be seen whether each one of these individual pieces actually works. And then when you roll them up into that whole thing, whether it makes sense and works in a way where it's a little bit more streamlined in Europe when, at least in Clarna's case, where they actually own that bank. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, the thing about rolling them all up that I kind of constantly am asking myself as it relates to buy now, pay later is like, what is the point of this for a consumer, right? Because I mean, obviously, like they have a lot of individual pieces that make sense and that add value, even like a firm when it was offering the high yield savings account, like it good. It was nice. It was a nice little kind of add-on, but it was really like bolted onto the side of a thing that it otherwise really had nothing to do with. And I feel like, you know, Klarna was some of the pieces that it's trying to assemble. And it's hard because you're in different geographies and there's different things you can do in each geography. But I'm trying to sort of figure out like, what is the centerpiece experience of this? And does it make sense for consumers? And, you know, I did think it was really interesting. Again, specifically in the U.S., that Klarna, which from all reports is gearing up to go through an IPO soon-ish, maybe, and is trying to sort of demonstrate to the market and to investors that it can add new products, it can add new revenue streams. That's something they talked about when they announced Klarna Plus. That, to me, seems maybe a little less focused on building out the best kind of cohesive value proposition for all Klarna customers and more about like, hey, what's a way that we can sort of monetize very sort of heavy users of our service? And, you know, I mean, the comparison to credit cards is sort of irresistible. I think Matt Janiga on Twitter pointed out reasonably that, you know, a $7.99 a month fee equates to just about as much as you pay in an annual fee, sort of mid-tier rewards credit card, about $95 a year. My pushback on that would be I would tend to doubt, and I could be completely wrong about this, that Klarna's rewards network and infrastructure is as robust as the Capital Ones and JP Morgan Chases and American Expresses of the world. They've spent a lot of time building that infrastructure and making it something that consumers could get addicted to. So maybe Klarna gets there, but you know, to me, I think that calls a little bit into question how you know much that potentially makes sense. So I don't know. I struggle with that. And then on the Affirm side, you know, I thought it was really interesting that they seem to be all in on the Affirm debit card. I actually just got my Affirm debit card in the mail recently. So gonna try that out. And then moving from a sort of decoupled debit structure, which is connecting an external checking account using that to pay for debit card purchases and then having buy now, pay later functionality sort of embedded in the debit card 
to more of a, I guess, kind of traditional debit card structure where the debit card will have an affirm deposit account associated with it and trying to capture, I guess, that like direct deposit and really play more in the realm of, you know, a Chime or a Cash App or some of those types of providers. And so it seems like they're sort of headed in different directions in a sense. Like Klarna really does seem to be trying to build a new version of an American Express or Capital One or JP Morgan Chase, like play that credit card game. Affirm seems to be headed in more, I guess, guess of a, like a banking sort of focused play. And I, I don't know, I'll be very curious to see how those play out or if these two companies kind of then come back together and start to kind of cross paths again or merge. But yeah, it's a wild space. Buy Now Pay Later is back, Jason. I, there was sort of a, a lull in 2023 about it. Now 2024, we're all excited about Buy Now Pay Later again. I will briefly on sort of like the Affirm strategy. By starting with a credit product and then trying to back into sort of adding, call it like banking features, savings, you know, some sort of debit kind yeah. of functionality, to me intuitively kind of makes more sense than the reverse, right? If you look at, at least in the US, the sort of neobanks that started as banking first and try to add credit, not really any of them have been particularly successful at adding that credit because of the customers they attracted in step one. So it's like, if I had to do this, credit, and you've talked about this plenty of times, it's like credit is by far a much more difficult business to build for a whole ton of reasons. So it's like starting with credit and then, you know, have that figured out, hopefully have your unit economics work, you know, have your risk, fraud and risk under control, and then backing into these other ancillary or adjacent products feels more likely to be successful. You know, obviously, if you're a firm, you're still competing with whoever this person already has as their day-to-day bank account, but you do have a foothold into that person's wallet, into their P&L that you can try to use to attract them. So, I mean, as far as sort of, I guess that maybe is comparing apples and oranges to talk about a firm versus Chime or whatever, but it, it does seem like a more plausible product land and expand strategy than the inverse. Yeah, I agree. And from everything I've heard, the you know Affirm debit card is growing pretty quickly and has gotten some pretty good initial traction. I am truly fascinated about the addition of buy now, pay later functionality into a card product construct. And this is something that the traditional card issuers have been talking about as well. Like apparently a lot of the loan growth at American Express over the last quarter actually came from their sort of planet buy now, pay later functionality that they've embedded into their cards. And so I do think there is a utility for combining those. And I totally agree. I mean, start with lending and work your way back into deposits. I mean, maybe maybe like the SoFis of the world and the lending clubs of the world are a better point of comparison for where a firm is going in terms of the part of the market they're trying to attack. But yeah, I completely agree with that. Do you want to jump us into our next story? It's a shocking one from what I understand. Yeah. So did PayPal shock the world? Uh, The consensus seemed to be, no, I'll admit I probably shouldn't. I didn't actually (laughs) watch the entire video. I I mostly like read the news release because I'm more of a reader than I am a video watcher. And for those that didn't catch this, you know, PayPal seemed to make a very aggressive PR push in advance of this announcement. I mean, I feel like I saw headlines both in sort of like fintech 
you know, newslettery world as well as, you know, CNBC business press kind of world touting that they were going to, quote unquote, shock the world with their sort of Apple style. It had Apple vibes of a you know product or feature announcement. It did. You know, basically, they announced, I want to say, six things. I'm not going to summarize all of them. They use the word AI a lot, which I guess is not surprising given, you know, where we are here in 2024. And a lot of what they were introducing were either, you know, relatively added updates to existing functionality, you know, trying to make the checkout experience faster, you know, or announcing things that, you know, frankly, plenty of other companies either already have or have attempted and, and not been particularly successful. And I'm thinking Fastlane, which is their sort of branded version of one-click checkout. You know, we do not need to relitigate the fast and bolt of the world. You know, a lot of companies have tried this. I don't think anyone has really hit in breakout velocity. I mean, even Stripe has a consumer-facing product that I think is called Link, which is basically one-click checkout. So, you know, as a consumer, you can enroll. And then if you go to another merchant that uses Stripe, you know, use this sort of expedited form checkout. The smart receipt thing, like, okay, cool. I mean, Klarna has been doing this for a long time as far as sort of providing a a wallet of sorts that tracks receipts from purchases, including, I think, pulling in things like delivery information. I want to say Apple also announced this maybe like a year ago. PayPal also announced that they were reinventing the PayPal app with cash pass, cashback offers, which again, this is something that PayPal already had. You know, pretty much every consumer bank or wallet app has some kind of cashback offers. A lot of them are undifferentiated because they use the same partners underneath. You know, one is called Dosh, I think. There's like a handful of these sort of rewards networks that integrate with merchants to provide discounts or cashback. So yeah, not, you know, the overall consensus from both sort of fintech commentators as well as stock analyst commentators seem to be rather underwhelmed. I think share price dropped something like five or six percent after this announcement. So the market did not seem to be, you know, overly impressed. Alex, did you were you shocked? Are you excited about smart receipts and the new Venmo business profiles that they announced? All right. Let me give the defense of PayPal, which I haven't seen anywhere, but I'll attempt to provide it. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So Alex Chris, who is the new CEO of PayPal, came over from Intuit after spending many years working with small businesses in the Intuit ecosystem, was brought into PayPal specifically with the sort of goal or intention of sort of unwinding the maybe overly ambitious uh, pandemic era years of the former CEO, Dan Shulman, where they were getting into stable coins and super apps and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. His you know, entry into PayPal was like, we're going to be sort of a more sober, buttoned up company. We're going to focus on our core business, which is these merchants and small businesses that maybe we've been neglecting a little bit. And like, that's what we're going to do. And so while I, as a consumer and fintech commentator, found all of the things that PayPal announced to be trivial to varying degrees and uh, certainly not shocking in any way that would get me excited on sort of a visceral level, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps I am not the target market for that. Perhaps it is small business owners who have been, been underserved by PayPal for many years and 
are starting to get frustrated using PayPal when all these other great services seem to care more about getting their business. And this is PayPal returning to its roots as we all must eventually do and trying to sort of win back the loyalty of small business owners. And while that has not been expressed as an opinion on CNBC, nor necessarily in PayPal's share price, perhaps it will show up in the long-term results as they create more value for small business owners. Jason, do you buy my defense at all, or are you just sort of shaking your head? Okay, I have not heard that analysis, and that does seem reasonable. To be fair, I read the release and kind of like yawned slash rolled my eyes at how many times they (laughs) mentioned AI, which I feel like probably was more for the stock analysts than it was for the small business owners. But the wider context as far as, you know, CEO changeover and sort of refocusing on PayPal's core business versus some of these other initiatives we've seen over the years, the stablecoin, super app kind of stuff that you mentioned. I think think that's a fair defense. I mean, the I'm interested to see how some of this plays out. Specifically, they touted, I think what they referred to as advanced offers, which was letting merchants do marketing, targeting, if I interpret it correctly, based on item level, SKU level data of what users had purchased. But the marketer side of my brain says, that's cool. Like I would love to be able to target people with that level of granularity, which is it was, yeah. typically is, is not something that you can do. The flip side of that, if I put on my like Rohit Chopra hat, is just like data harvesting. Like, ah. yeah. so I'm definitely interested to see how that plays out from like a privacy regulatory perspective. But you know, the ability to go beyond just transaction level data, which we talk about all the time, you know, so and so made a purchase at Walgreens or Best Buy or whatever, to item level data could be really, really powerful, but also comes with a potentially immense amount of privacy risk. So I think you make a fair point. You know, if you were um, auditioning to be like PayPal's like defense comms, like I think you get a passing grade. <laughs> passing grade, passing grade. Well, yeah, passing um, grade. B, B plus, B plus. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Just to be clear, I do not want that job. Although I think I would probably prefer to work in this version of PayPal than the having to defend stable coins that may or may not make sense version of PayPal. It's funny, you know, I mean, I think the point you made is a really good one, which is whatever they were building from a product perspective, and we'll see how some of these things work out and how much value they provide to merchants on the platform and all that kind of stuff. I think you make a really good point that this was like the dumbest PR sort of blitz strategy thing ever. Like, I mean, and it, it kind of, it does, I think, relate a little bit back to the Shulman era of PayPal, where it's like, he was really good at that. I mean, say what you will about the Shulman era of PayPal, but like, he was good at like, big vision, getting people excited, painting a picture of where the puck could go, like really expanding like, the sort of perimeter of what PayPal could potentially do. I think there were some like execution challenges and some other things that went along with that. But like, He was a good hype man. I don't necessarily think that's the new CEO's strength. And I might suggest, and I'm sure this is being discussed ad nauseum inside PayPal right now, maybe just don't try to play that same game that Dan Shulman was playing before and like just sort of quietly try to knock it out of the park for small businesses and merchants. And don't worry quite so much about impressing stock market analysts with buzzwords because this, uh, at least on a PR front, was seemingly a pretty big fail. Yeah, I mean, I I scratched my head because... You know, if your thesis is correct, I don't think too many like 
small business owners are necessarily paying attention to the press coverage of PayPal. They don't watch CNBC? I, I mean, I don't know. They might. I just It feels like the, <laughs> the release was for stock analysts, and stock yes. analysts were not impressed. But I know we're running out of time. Alex, can you explain what Built Rewards is to me? Oh, my God. This is so a pop quiz. I hope. Uh, well, <laughs> I, hope I was going to say, you. like, the whole thing on the outline was which one of us can get to the question first so we can just dump it on the other person. So yeah. congratulations. Uh, you have managed to get to that part of the outline first. Sure, sure, I can. Absolutely. So Built Rewards, for those who are not familiar, they just raised $200 million from General Catalyst and from a number of sort of other VC firms, sort of of a just sort of general tech nature, it seems. The valuation is $3.1 billion, which Jason is giving me sort of flashbacks to the good old days of fintech. So this fundraise and this valuation kind of came out of nowhere to me and like was sort of so big that I did have to pause and sort of wonder what does Built do? So I'm going to try to give you my best possible explanation. Built is essentially a sort of payments and reward network for renters. And so as I understand it, the general idea is that they provide kind of a white label lead gen type business that's actually built on top of, I believe, Wells Fargo. And the idea is that they can drive rental payments through, you know, a card and that, you know, Wells Fargo is sort of the partner on the back end and Wells Fargo pays, I guess, kind of a commission or a rev share to Built for that. And then on top of that, Built has a network of landlords, property owners, and other sort of people in the general rent real estate ecosystem that are a part of this larger network. And the again, the main value proposition to tenants that use Built is that they can get paid rewards for paying their rent. Built will sort of facilitate for these in-network rentals. And I think they're up to about 4 million units that are part of their network. The ability for users to get points. Built will also, I guess, facilitate even for, you know, rental units that are not in their network, sort of the transaction fees or the sort of payment friction associated with paying your rent via card or even like mailing a physical check on behalf of a user. So it seems as though Built's sort of general goal is to get as many renters as possible wanting to pay their rent through Built in exchange for earning rewards, and then using that side of the network and the growth from that network to then bring more landlords and property owners onto the other side of the network and have them be in-network properties that then create new value propositions for the rental units, as well as, I would imagine, other sort of additional revenue streams for built. So sort of seems like a two-sided marketplace that's kind of driven ultimately by Americans' insatiable desire for rewards. And I'm sure you've seen some of the like billboards and stuff, if you've been traveling around, like, you know, earn rewards when you pay rent, that's kind of the headline value proposition. And I guess it's working. Um, did that answer your question at all, Jason? I don't feel like it answered your question. I, I, yes and no. I mean, I guess, you know, usually I can pull up any given fintech and within a few minutes of scrolling through the site, like generally understand, like, what is the economic model here? Like, how does this business work? Yeah. And this is one where it's like, I looked through the site, you know, I read, you know, whatever the current press release was. I went back and read like previous fundraisers 
releases to try to understand like what exactly is happening here and if you're you know giving these end consumers you know essentially cash back on rent where is that coming from and i feel like i have a slightly better understanding now but but it's still a little, the math on it is still a little bit hazy no I, I do think given the emphasis on the rewards on rent and then specifically as you described it the landlords or the whatever real estate developers that are belonging to built's platform you know it it seems like the goal over time is to attract more landlords to belong to that platform and presumably there's some like revenue or monetization either cost savings because they can process the payment i would assume directly via ach rather than card rails or rather than mailing a physical check and perhaps one of the TechCrunch articles mentioned that one of the revenue streams from the landlord side is essentially landlords like paying for or buying points that their tenants receive, which kind of reminded me of like the classic airline model where, you know, United is basically making money by selling miles to Chase. And that is like a major source of, of revenue for the airline partner in that scenario. I mean, I, I did stop and wonder, I'm like, why? And I guess maybe this is a sign that I've finally grown into my homeownership. But I'm like, why do landlords need to give their tenants points? <laughs> is it is it living yes. there the whole point? Like, what 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 is the point <laughs> incentive? Like, you signed a lease, like you have to pay. Like, I actually don't totally understand why the landlords need this points incentive for their tenants, particularly given like the current housing climate in the U.S., where you're lucky if you have anywhere to live. Why do they need to hand out points as an incentive? But I guess it certainly seems like they're appealing to this like premium, the SoFi days we would call it like the Henry tier, like high earner, not rich yet, where it's like, oh, okay, like do you live in like a fancy high rise rental in like San Francisco or New York? And you make a lot of money, but your rent is probably also a lot of money and you are like a savvy you know, young millennial or elder Gen Z that wants to optimize that. And like, this feels squarely aimed at that audience, which makes sense. I mean, I'm not, you know, an expert on residential real estate, but given that most properties just by count are like small mom and pop landlords, but the sort of luxury buildings that you're going to find in like a New York, a San Francisco that are sort of new developments and appealing to you know, that sort of, yeah, high-earning, whatever, urban millennial Gen Z do tend to be owned by big real estate conglomerates that are they're probably more easily lend themselves to this kind of rewards program. So I'm not going to pretend that I understand how the economics on this work because I still don't. But it does seem, I mean, the biggest question I had was like, do they take credit risk? Like, are they actually originating the credit associated with this? And the answer to that does seem to be no. Like, it basically seems like a white label Wells Fargo card. And what Built is doing, as I understand it, caveat, is building and operating this rewards network. Yeah, yeah. No, that seems to be true. I mean, from what I can tell, like kind of glancing through their website as you did, I mean, they have, they, they very much have like a points guy sort of aesthetic, right? So it's very reminiscent of like, the points guy, you know, Chase Sapphire, like it's that vibe. So that's clearly who they're sort of appealing to. 
you know, finally you can get uh, points for paying your rent, which I, I, I'm like you, like the few times that I've rented, I was like, I'm just happy to have a place to live. I didn't think I also got points or had like an expectation of that, but times have apparently changed. And the big distinction seems to be in network versus out of network. So in network is, hey, if it's one of these property owners, like you're saying, maybe in like a big urban area, that's part of this big like property management company, we're already connected to this. You can pay your rent through the built app. You can use any number of different payment methods. You earn rewards. It's all in network. It's easy and presumably sort of monetized on the back end, as you were saying. Or alternatively, for anyone who's out of network, these little mom and pop shops who don't think you deserve points on your rent, get the built MasterCard, which is, I believe, Wells Fargo under the covers you're saying, use that to pay your rent. And we will, on behalf of you, mail a check or whatever it takes to pay your landlord. And you can also earn points that way. So sort of an in-network and out-of-network approach for hooking as many people into rewards and then using... I guess the appeal of like built customers and who they are and like their expectation of points as leverage to continue adding more property managers to their network. So I guess it's your classic sort of solving a cold start problem. Again, I mean, I haven't gotten to look at the numbers under the hood, but seemingly some investors got to see it and and thought it was worth uh, pouring a lot more money into. So good for them. Should we get to our can't let it go and wrap it up for the... I am excited to hear your can't let it go. Why don't you go first? Okay. So I don't know if you caught this one. It was definitely trending on X and other places. There was a pastor who has been charged with selling essentially a worthless cryptocurrency to the tune of $3.2 million uh, and using some of the funds from that to finance you know his lavish lifestyle including Hmm. renovating his house and the explanation boiled down to basically god told me to do it he posted a video online on x justifying this enterprise saying that he took god at his word and sold a cryptocurrency with no clear exit and that God also told him he needed to, I guess, like renovate his kitchen or something. <laughs> I know the, you know the crypto stuff is usually your beat, but I just, when I saw this, uh, on the one hand, it's like, I'm not, you know, I'm not surprised that, that you still have these kind of just like on their face absurd crypto scams. But the fact that the guy then put out a video, like admitting what he did and obviously, yeah. you know, blaming religion. I just found completely ridiculous. So that is my short thing that I cannot let go of uh, this month. What about you? Did you watch the video? Yes, I did watch the video actually like an hour ago to make sure that <laughs> to make sure I was getting this right. That is amazing. The one thing I will say about it is the God told me to renovate my kitchen. Like I think in reality, it's like my wife told me to renovate the kitchen and then I had to sort of figure out the way to make that work. So um Regardless of how that ended up happening, that is an amazing story. My Can't Let It Go, which I saw on Twitter today, as a matter of fact, so it's very recent, but I think it's going to stay in my brain for a while. Sheil Manat from Better Tomorrow Ventures shared on Twitter that Anguilla, am I saying that right? The little tiny Caribbean island? They apparently, they are the country that has the .ai domain name. So if you want a .ai name, 
It's technically ones that uh, belong to uh, the tiny nation state of Anguilla, um, similar in the way that like .us or you know .ca or any of the other uh, sort of country-specific domains uh, work. The benefit, however, to this tiny little country is that the AI boom means that everybody wants a .ai domain name if they can get their hands on it. So apparently they've been just sort of in the business of selling those to those who want them. Apparently sales of .ai domain names are up by about 4x year over year and now make up one third of Anguilla's government's budget and 20% of their overall GDP. So Never say that the AI boom is not benefiting the broader global economy, because here's some evidence that it is. I love that. I think that's fantastic. I have no complaints. No notes. No notes. No Just notes. keep collecting those. It kind of reminds me of the old joke about you know all VC dollars going to consumer tech companies just ending up in Google and Facebook's pockets because they're used for advertising. Like This is the domain version of that, and I'm so happy that a small island in the Caribbean can be benefiting from this. So I mean, at least it's not like Russia or something. They wouldn't be able to buy the domain. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, there's definitely some versions of it where it's like, oh, no, we don't want to be sending money that way. So no, like they're not on any sanctions list. They're just a nice little country that's not bothering anyone. And uh, this is a boost to their economy. So a delightful story all the way around. And with that, we will go ahead and leave it there for this month. Jason, I'm sure there will be plenty of AI craziness, bass craziness, general fundraising craziness to talk about next month. As you mentioned, we're hoping to have John Zanoff from New York Fintech Week join us as well. He's a hoot on podcasts, so that should be a lot of fun. And until then, thank you, sir. Yeah, looking forward to it. Have a good one. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fintech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest fintech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love fintech takes, please tell a friend.